It's good news, Celine. I say. She grunts. No, really. The Supreme Court has granted us an appeal. They wouldn't do that unless they felt there were real grounds to hear the case. There's a strong chance we'll get a new trial. And if we do, I feel that we can win it. Celine stares at me for a long time. Then she puts her cigarette out in the chipped glass ashtray on the coffee table. When will the judges decide? When can I tell Justin he'll get a second chance? It's killing him in there. He gets beat up all the time. He's telling me he's going to join a gang for protection. He needs hope. I nod. It'll probably take about six months. Celine sighs. A long time. It's something for Justin to hang on to. I lean over, pick up the bourbon and stand. You don't need this. I walk the glass into the kitchen and empty it into the sink. When I come back, Selena's on her feet. You're a strong woman, Selene, and you have to be the strongest you've ever been. For your son. Selene's back stiffens. Her eyes harden. I nod again, hoping the fire I see in her will survive the coming months. I walk to the car and start it. Look at my own eyes in the rearview mirror. You get that woman's boy out of prison, I say. You will. And I mean it. People like Celine and Justin are the reason I left the DA's office to become a defense attorney. The reason I often violate the sacred rule of lawyering. Don't get personally involved. When I care about the client, it's always personal for me. But not all clients are like the Bowers. Many of my clients are guilty of everything they're charged with, and then some. They don't hire me to get justice, but to avoid it at all costs. Find loopholes, get the evidence excluded, spin the jurors' heads with clever cross-examinations, and break their hearts with hard luck stories. It doesn't matter how, just get them out of there. And the worst among them are the entitled executives who play shell games with other people's money. The white-collar defendants who drive to my office in Bentleys and ask my secretary if she can validate their parking. I care about those clients about as much as they care about everyone else. I'm only in it for the money. An hour after I get back to my office, I'm set to meet one of them. Philip Baldwin. Philadelphia's own homegrown Mini Madoff. Baldwin turned his family's hundred-year-old private investment firm into a Ponzi scheme. Since the day of his indictment by a federal grand jury, Philip Baldwin has sworn his innocence and vowed to fight the charges all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Baldwin's trial is set to begin in three weeks, and my law partner, Susan Klein, and I are counting on the fees the case will bring in to pay our overhead. At 9.45, I join Susan outside her office, and we walk down the lushly carpeted hall toward one of our conference rooms. The feel of our office is sleek and modern. A marble-floored lobby with tigerwood receptionist desk, recessed lighting throughout, white walls adorned with original paintings of iconic Philadelphia city scenes. Boathouse Row, the art museum, Independence Hall... 
We enter the conference room, and Baldwin stands to greet us. I'd read that Baldwin wore $10,000 William Fioravanti suits. The deep blue double-breasted number he has on now certainly looks like it could go for that much. He paid much more for his Patek Philippe watch and sapphire cufflinks. Baldwin even has a rich man's hair, thick, silver-gray, and sculpted atop his chiseled 55-year-old face. We all sit down, and Baldwin begins. Mick, Susan, thank you for agreeing to meet with us at the last minute. Some things have happened, and Kimberly and I felt it important to see you right away. He nods toward his 30-year-old second wife, who is model tall and thin with superbly highlighted brunette hair and blazing blue eyes. Kimberly Baldwin is one of the five.